We begin in Luke 24, as we've done for four weeks now, being reminded of this conversation Jesus had with two disciples on the resurrection day. They didn't know he was Jesus. They didn't know Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. And as they walked on the road, they were joined unknowingly by Jesus Christ himself. And in the matter of those few hours at most, Jesus converses with them and summarizes all of Scripture for them. We read of it in his words to them in Luke 24, verse 25, where Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's been our effort in these last four messages, to understand how all of scripture is divinely structured to point us to Christ himself. In John 5, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for being self-righteous and for being blind to the divine structure of Scripture. And Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is the Scriptures that bear witness about me. When you pick up your Bible and read it this week, you are reading about the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've taken this month to survey this structure of the Bible in order to see how the Bible witnesses to, testifies to Jesus the Christ. How all the Bible tells this story of Jesus. And for the record, once more, this skeleton outline was received in a freshman Bible class called Principles of Christian Growth. And perhaps if other students uh, gleaned as much from it as I did, it was foundational to their Christian growth. As Dr. Mark Minnick presented this outline on how all the Bible steers us to Christ. May it continue to prove useful as we all see this simple outline. We began with an overview of the books of the law. We saw that their content was laws that we couldn't keep and sacrifices that couldn't cleanse. And the content of those books then reveals to us the key issue of the books of the law, holiness. God is holy and we are sinners. And that presents an issue, a problem of life and death. And the function of those books was to create a longing for a perfect priest who would go into a perfect temple and make a perfect sacrifice on a perfect altar. And yet we don't find that. Instead, we find the blood and bull of bulls and goats being sacrificed again and again by priests who were themselves imperfect knowing that these sacrifices could never take away sin. 
we moved on to the books of history, and we saw there the content was that roller coaster of hope and optimism met with continued frustration and disappointment. Hope and disappointment showing us that the real issue of the books of history is an issue of leadership. The prophets couldn't be the leader we needed them to be. The priests couldn't be the leaders we needed them to be. The kings and the judges couldn't be the leaders we wanted them to be. Every time we set our hope on a good leader, he demonstrated to us that he was not as good as we need him to be. The greatest of the leaders, the greatest of the judges, the greatest of the kings could for decades show us the hope that maybe this was the leader that would implement and inaugurate God's kingdom, only to have those leaders fail miserably. Hope and disappointment showed us that we were longing for a perfect king who would rule in a perfect kingdom with perfect citizens, and all would be well, but not yet. We considered the books of prophecy. We saw that the prophets are characterized by preaching and predictions. Preaching, what God expects, and predictions, what we should expect if we don't heed God's message and return to Him. In their preaching and in their prophesying, the key issue that came to the surface was one of loyalty. God's people had broken the covenant. And so we saw over a hundred times, God calls them to return. God was willing to forgive. He was willing to pick up that fragmented covenant and demonstrate mercy and loving kindness if they would return. And these books of prophecy create in us a longing for a perfect prophet with the perfect truth. And when we put this whole Old Testament together, we realize that every portion of the Old Testament creates in us a longing for something that we do not yet have. And so we categorize the Old Testament as unsatisfying. With the help of the New Testament, we would say it was good for what it was designed to do, but it was designed to create in us a dissatisfaction with as much as we have so far. And the Old Testament ends under the administration of Nehemiah and under the prophecy of Malachi. And when Malachi's prophecy closes, we have 400 years that's, that number alone is hard for us to imagine. We think America's been around a long time. But we're only halfway through just the 400 years of silence where God has no word through any prophet, priest, or king to his people. And the faithful waited, longing for the perfect priest that they could read about and teach their children about, longing for the perfect king. And, and while they would say, like David, or like Solomon, or like Uzziah, or like Joash, they would always have to temper that enthusiasm with, but better than them. Longing for the perfect prophet. 
The Old Testament overall is unsatisfying. God breaks the silence chronologically in Luke chapter 1. When his angel is sent to Zechariah the priest there in the holy place. God unleashes the grace of redemption's plan and tells Zechariah, your son will ready the way for the Messiah who will come quickly to his temple. 27 books shape this New Testament. That very title reminds us that there's another promise being made, another agreement being entered into. It's another covenant. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, an old agreement and now a new agreement to unfold for us. Those 27 books that describe for us this new agreement, this new covenant, are divided into four primary divisions. The first four books of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all bear the name of someone who wanted to document who Jesus is. These first four books of the New Testament we call the Gospels. Well, we know that gospel means good news. So it's, it's actually an interesting use of the word to, to label these books as good newses, right? Gospels sounds familiar to us, but when we really think of what that means, we're calling these good news books. What's in these first four books that leads us to call them good news? The Gospels are an introduction of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to just briefly look at the introductions of each of these good news publications, beginning with Matthew's account. How does Matthew introduce us to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, there's genealogy, story of nativity, and then in chapter 3 we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist existed to introduce to the world the Messiah. Matthew continues this ministry of John and then introduces us to Jesus in chapter 4 who is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted he enters into that wilderness, and unlike another son, the nation of Israel, called the Son of God who failed in the wilderness to keep God's commands, this son will go into the wilderness and keep all of God's instruction, obey God's will, lean on his truth, and emerging victoriously from that temptation in the wilderness... We read in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew wants to be clear as he sets up these early chapters of his good news account. He wants to be clear who this Jesus is by his genealogy, by his miraculous birth, overseen by the Holy Spirit, by his successful victory there in shunning the temptations of the devil and committing himself to do the will of his Father. And in an introduction to this Jesus, he tells us he came preaching the kingdom of God. And he's careful to remind us he did so as was predicted by the prophets. Just as was expected, Jesus came. Just as was longed for, Jesus would come. Those people that sat in darkness will now finally feel the warmth of that light shining on them. It's what they've been waiting for. Jesus is here. Meet the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Mark chapter 1. Verse 14. Similarly to Matthew's account, he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled. What time? What needs to be filled up? Well, what needs to be filled up is the waiting and the longing, and it's filled and it's satisfying, and, and, and we can have our full taste of what has come. The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, that kingdom we've been longing for. The king who would reign over a perfect kingdom. It's here. So repent and believe in the gospel. Mark introduces us to Jesus the Messiah, but it connects it to the time that was elapsing as they waited. He's alluding to the dissatisfaction using the word fulfillment. In introducing us to Jesus, he's saying, this is what you've been waiting for. And we would say, whether you know it or not, this is what you need. May I introduce you to Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, Savior of sinners. The Gospels are good news. They take sinners by the hand and they introduce us to the one we didn't even know we needed. Luke, chapter 3. Of course, Luke begins with the beautiful story of the unfolding of the miraculous births of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And then, having heard of the birth of Jesus and angelic announcements that we celebrate at Christmas time. 
we get to the introduction of who this Jesus is as his ministry unfolds. Luke chapter 3 gives us this lengthy background. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's, that's a lot of historic minutiae, right? Stuff that we wouldn't think is important. But Luke says, I, I want to make this really clear. I want, I want to anchor this to, his, to history so that you know who this Jesus that I'm speaking of really is. He's a real historical figure. And so all of that detail of verses 1 and 2, but it's not by accident. Luke is making an introduction, and he needs to put Jesus in exactly the right place so that we would know this is true. And Luke, in his gospel account and in writing the book of Acts, makes it clear that he is going to give careful attention to making his case in presenting Jesus. He's introducing us to him. Well, in this very chapter, we read of John the Baptist introducing us to Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus is baptized, and God the Father himself introduces Jesus to us saying in verse 22, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Paul would refer to this as the second Adam, because the first son, the first Adam, failed to keep God's will, was not pleasing to the Father. But this son, the one we've been waiting for, would accomplish the pleasure of God, would accomplish perfect obedience in our place. The Father introduces us to Jesus, the beloved Son. And then immediately Luke moves into genealogy. And the rest of chapter 3 is a description of who this Jesus is, the Son of God who has taken on human form. And it almost seems out of place to have this long genealogy until we realize chapter 3 is all about the official introduction. Jesus has grown now. He's not the baby in the manger in Luke 2. In Luke 3, he's ready to begin his ministry, and Luke wants to be clear about who this is. Introduced by John, introduced by the Father, introduced by his genealogy, so we would know who this is. And then John's gospel. John chapter 1 The word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That'd be quite an introduction. We never see that language actually used when people are introduced to Jesus in the gospels. 
But you can imagine Philip or Andrew or any of the disciples bringing someone to Jesus and saying, this is the word that has come to live among us. And in him, we can see the glory of the Father. He's full of grace and truth. It's quite an introduction, but it continues. Verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Meet Jesus. He shows us the Father. Verse 20, when pressed by the priests and the Levites, John the Baptist says, I I am not the Christ. I'm not him. But I can point to him. I can introduce you to him. But my introduction, John would say, comes when you repent of sin, when you get serious about righteousness. Because The one who's coming after me, that's what he demands. And it's not long after John says, I am not the Christ. I'm not. I'm not him. I'm preparing the way for him. That we read in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, there he is. I am not the Christ. There he is. He's the Lamb of God to satisfy that longing created in us by the books of the law for a perfect priest with a perfect spotless Lamb to sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No wonder he says, behold, for 2,000 years, God's people have been clinging to promises and feeling yearnings and longings for something more. How can you finally say, today's the day where all those unsatisfied longings are met? John just uses one word. He says, look, there it is. We would read all the the New Testament record and say, what more could we want? The psalmist tried to say that. What have I on earth beside you? What more could I want? And yet the Old Testament stirs and antagonizes wanting and longing. And now the good news books are saying, no more waiting. No more shadowy pictures. No more images and seemingly fruitless practices. Because now we have the substance to replace the shadow. Now we have the better to replace the good. We've met Jesus in the Gospels. These books of introduction. They have introduced us to the Son of God. We have seen his racial line, which is important. He needs to be a son of Abraham in fulfilling that Abrahamic covenant. We've traced his royal line in these introductions by the Gospels, and that's important. 
he needs to be a descendant of King David because the Davidic covenant was that a son of David would sit on the throne forever. We see him as a powerful king and yet a lowly servant. We're introduced to this Jesus and, and, and the Gospels say we could touch and handle him. He's a man and yet we also know he's God. Theologically, we we have to recognize he is one person, but with two natures. One, the nature of God, fully God, but in condescending to accomplish redemption, taking on the form of man, not as another person, but as another nature. We're introduced to Jesus and his sweeping lordship over man and beast, over wind and waves, over disease and death, over angels and demons. We're introduced to Jesus and his authoritative teaching, vividly displaying wisdom from the time as a young teenager in the temple with his parents to the opening of his ministry and throughout those three years, people continually astonished at the things he would say. We're introduced to Jesus and his clear purpose to seek and to save the lost, calling sinners to repentance, much to the chagrin of the the righteous, or should I say self-righteous crowd. He eats with sinners. He's eating with tax collectors. If he's really God, he would know that that woman sitting next to him at that meal has a pretty lousy reputation. And Jesus' response was, as the physician, I haven't come to heal the righteous, but the sinners. We're introduced to his clear purpose, which in and of itself is good news. For we, like Paul at times, feel like saying we're the chief of sinners, yet God in his mercy has saved us and has promised to continually make us like Christ until he appears. We're introduced to Jesus by means of his power to heal paralyzed legs. And in doing so, we're introduced to his power to forgive sins. You see, Mark's introduction continues in chapter 2 with that account. As Jesus tells the man to rise up and walk as proof that he has the power to say, your sins are forgiven. So we think of that man who was healed. For the rest of his days on earth, a generation or two, he had this good news story to tell about legs healed. But that account was designed to introduce us to Jesus who has the power to forgive sins. The Gospels tell us the good news. Jesus is here. God has come near to save sinners for his glory. He's made a way. He's made a way for sinners to be made right with a holy God. They can be 
declared righteous and forgiven and alive forevermore through faith in this Jesus that is introduced to us. The Gospels are the introduction of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The next division is the book of Acts. That one book stands alone as the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Acts, as we have shortened the title, is actually the Acts of the Apostles. Covers that first 30 years of church history after the ministry of Jesus. And it answers this question. What did these apostles do after their years of being with Jesus? What did they do? What are the acts of the apostles? Those that spent time with Jesus. Well, what did they do? Acts tells us. They went everywhere telling people about Jesus. It's that simple. Oh, listen, every one of them had responsibilities and had obligations, and they didn't do right by their families. They needed to do right in the workplace. They had obligations as citizens. They're just like you and I, but they had one purpose, to tell others about Jesus. We can summarize the whole book as a group of men who had been introduced to Jesus in the Gospels, and now they were proclaiming Jesus to everyone. We walk through the opening of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached at Pentecost and made it clear we have one message, and it's Jesus. Have you met him? Do you know God's word? It creates a longing for him. And, and this is the one who was spoken of in the law and the prophets. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. They were proclaiming Christ. Acts 5, verse 42 and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the anointed one, is Jesus. The Old Testament hope is fulfilled in Jesus. We hear that the Christ is Jesus, and we, we of course, that's his name, Christ or Jesus. But that's not what the apostles were saying. They were saying that the Christ that Old Testament figure whose name was unknown to us, only his description and his purpose and his mission and the longing for him, all of that is Old Testament, but that's all fulfilled now. That this one we're speaking of, the Christ, is Jesus. Acts chapter 8, 
in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 8.35, and Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The scripture was Isaiah, reminding us that all these scriptures point us to Jesus. Acts chapter 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Old Testament figure for whom we longed, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that Christ. You see, the gospel has always been designed to be a satisfaction. So when Jesus at the Last Supper took the bread and the wine, they, they partook of it. Because we all know, as we'll do this afternoon, we'll eat food and we'll drink. Some of you like your water. Others are going to have your Diet Coke and iced tea. And, but we do it, and, and by partaking, we're satisfied. We're filled up. And every single meal is supposed to remind us that what God promised in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He satisfies us. Their message all throughout the book of Acts was that that Christ that you have waited for is Jesus. And he's enough. So we summarize the book of Acts as the proclamation of Jesus Christ. If the Gospels give us the facts, here's who he is, then Acts tells us what to do with the facts. Pass them on to other people. Do what the first generation church did. Take the news of Jesus everywhere. In elementary school, it was called show and tell. It's not too much different in the Christian life. By the way we live and by what we say, we make Jesus known. And by our words of defense of the hope that is in us, and by our good works which glorify our Father in heaven, others will see Jesus. The third division of these New Testament books are the letters. We call them the epistles sometimes, but it's kind of an old word. You don't think of writing an epistle to grandma. Nobody writes to grandma anymore, actually. <laughs> they text her, right? <laughs> These are letters. 21 letters collected that were written to the churches. In these letters, we have an explanation of Jesus, his person, his work. The gospel introduced us to the facts Acts is the proclamation of the facts. And, and this would be an explanation of them. What is, what is meant by the incarnation? What's going on there? So when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's, he's explaining it to them. Jesus, though being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation 
took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He's, he's explaining, though still a challenge for our minds, how this happened. Why it matters that Christ lived a sinless life. What righteousness really means to us. The sinless life of Christ, his atoning death, the effect of his resurrection, the pointlessness of life apart from the resurrection. The letters explain all of these truths to us. What did Jesus mean when he said he would send another comforter? These letters of explanation are sent to the churches so that they would understand what Jesus taught what he did, and what he will do. These letters shape a whole library of teaching that becomes the foundation of the church's doctrine. And it also becomes the foundation of the church's practice. By seeing how Jesus lived, we know how we should live. By hearing Jesus' words, we are governed down a path of righteousness. So our beliefs and our behavior are shaped by the person and work of Jesus Christ as it's explained to us in the letters. That's helpful to understand because there's a danger in our doctrine that we just see all this teaching and all these commands and it's just a collection of data and rules. But it's more than that when we frame this in the structure of Scripture that all centers on the person and work of Jesus. So the New Testament letters, yes, there's doctrine and admonition on how to live, but that doctrine and admonition is unfolding to us who Jesus is. And by seeing Him, we know what is true. By seeing Him, we know what is right to do. That's God's plan, Romans 8, 29 to conform us to the image of his dear Son. Because the Son has pleased the Father in every act of righteousness. Because the Father so delights in the Son, he is going to make every one of us who believe in the Son look just like him. So that the pleasure God feels in the Son will be shared with every son and daughter of faith. The letters explain Jesus. It's not just data or to-dos. It's showing us Christ. And finally, there's the book of Revelation. Where Jesus is known and fully revealed. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are at Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is Jesus who will be revealed in all of his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 makes it clear. He's coming to execute vengeance on his enemies. But on the same day he does that, that text tells us, the hearts of those who delight in him will be thrilled. There will be that collective sigh of, finally... And all the saints who are at the throne of Christ now in Revelation crying out, how long will we suffer in these bodies? How long will the church suffer persecution? How long will death remind us of its penalty? John chapter 5 says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. On that same day, in that same hour, all the world will be evaluated. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that the coming of Christ to those who are in unbelief will be like a, the coming of a thief in the night. They weren't expecting it. They weren't ready. But then he says, to you who are of the faith, you'll not be surprised by this because you're watching and you're ready. Revelation now is reminding us that all those passages, that day, that hour is coming. Jesus will come again. And he will usher in his kingdom that was begun, inaugurated, By his earthly ministry, Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is at hand. His church has been advancing his kingdom for centuries now. Based on his promise to us, the gates of hell can't withstand the onslaught of the gospel. But he's coming again to accomplish the final display of his victory. Colossians 2 tells us, He triumphed over his enemies at the cross, making a spectacle of them. But he's coming back to make sure that victory is known by everyone. And then Revelation 20 tells us death and hell are cast into the lake of fire as Jesus judges all of his enemies, including the final enemy, which is death. And he ushers us into a new heaven and new earth, declaring, behold, I make all things new. You see, the work of Jesus isn't complete yet. There's a little bit more to do. And the book of Revelation then tells us of Jesus Christ and the consummation of his work. Consummation is not a word we use much. It simply means the designed end. Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, 
declares that there will be a final consummation. There is a designed end, and here's what it looks like. Jesus on a throne, his church worshiping, and all of his enemies made his footstool. Because Philippians 2 tells us every tongue will confess he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth of Christ's second coming serves as a comfort for those who are trusting in him as Savior. Paul's teaching on the coming of Christ closes with these words. Comfort one another with these words. But the truth of Christ's second coming also serves as a warning to those who have not repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. They have not made his righteousness their own. They have not accepted his forgiveness. They have not tasted newness of life. These come through Jesus alone. You see, the righteousness of Christ will either be the means of your justification or the means of your condemnation. Our faith in him today determines how the righteousness of God will be used, either for us or against us. Revelation is the consummation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we've seen that the Old Testament creates a longing for a perfect priest, a perfect king, a perfect prophet. That Old Testament is for us the preparation for this person who's coming. You have company come into your home. And you tell the kids to scatter and do their chores and tidy up and let's get everything dusted and the bathroom cleaned and let's set the table. It's the preparation for the person who's coming. The Old Testament, it's not just stuff. It's not just paperwork and signed contracts. It's readying us for the person who's coming. And then in the New Testament, we find out who that person is. If the Old Testament is the preparation for God's anointed, the New Testament is the manifestation of that person. Like the dedication of a, of a statue and they yank the sheet off of it. Or the opening night of a performance on the stage and literally the curtain is lifted and we see what we've waited for. So Jesus is the manifestation of God's plan of redemption in the New Testament, which makes the whole Bible a revelation of a person, the living word, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sets the table. The New Testament serves the supper. It serves to us the bread and the wine. It serves to us the body and blood of Jesus. We drink and never thirst again. We eat the bread of life and are satisfied. And so we sing, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. This Bible says from beginning to end that Jesus is 
our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, stir up in us the joy of knowing Jesus. May we marvel at amazing grace that has introduced us to Jesus. May we feel the pleasure of the responsibility to proclaim Jesus. May we feast on your word to understand how Jesus is explained to us. And may we with faith long for his coming again, believing that our Jesus is king, that he will make all things new. Show us the satisfying sufficiency of Jesus that we might have joy in the daily struggles of the pilgrim journey that you've called us to. We ask all this in that powerful, saving name, Jesus, our God saves. Amen.